0: Good morning. The scripture this morning is from Luke 1, 26 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. The word of the Lord. Kids in choir
1: for helping us step into worship together. Advent 2. Is it okay if I move this? the odds of me slipping on it are over 50%. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We are in Advent, the second Sunday, and we are at the story known as the Annunciation. We'll talk about that in a moment. When I was growing up, in church and i've been in church pretty much since i can remember does anybody else have that experience church has been a part of their life since they can remember and as you were growing up inside this sort of extension of your family really you sort of picked up on things that they don't seem weird because they've just always been the case this is i mean we have this in our own families too just like things that are strange that if you were to come over to our house you'd think that's not how we do it at our house and i don't understand why that's okay for instance when i was growing up my dad only wears tank tops it's all he owns for tank tops and this is like a tradition that we picked up because tank tops are the very best upper wear right that's the correct term for shirts Upperwear. And so if you come to our house, there's a good chance, no matter what the temperature is, that I'm wearing a tank top. That's a strange thing for some people, but that's just the way it was in our house. If you grew up in church, there are things like that for us. The virgin birth is one of those things that if you just kind of grew up hearing this phrase all of the time and just became part of your own tradition, it may not be a thing that sticks out as strange, but we should know that it's just a little bit strange. So we're going to start today talking about what is kind of like litmus tests of the faith. So there are certain things that you just are expected to believe. And regardless of their absurdity or their strangeness, they just kind of like, can you, it's sort of if we were the kind of church that said the creeds each Sunday, uh, the Nicene Creed has a phrase in there about the virgin birth. And you say it just kind of like second nature. In fact, a while back, like a decade plus ago, there was a um, a book that came out that was pretty popular, and and a pastor who was pretty popular at the time said, like, what would happen if uh, archaeologists were digging around, like archaeologists are wont to do, and they happened upon a grave that sort of showed that Mary and joseph were actually the parents of jesus and that jesus had at a human dad how much would that screw up our own sense of kind of faith security would that rocket to its core what's parts of what we would call like uh the litmus tests of faith or the non-negotiables what falls in where and this author was not saying yes or no to any of this but just posing the question what parts of our faith can we have a conversation about and people got really really upset The virgin birth is one of these things that feels like a litmus test. It feels like, we'll put this word up, the big kind of doctrine. And there are other big ideas that tag along with the virgin birth. By the way, we all know what we're talking about when we say virgin birth. It means that Mary is the mother of Christ, but that there's not like a human father in the DNA equation. So if Jesus were to order one of those ancestry cheek swab kits, that would be so interesting. 24 and one. Oh my goodness, 24 and 1? <laughs> 24 and me, is that how it goes? It's 23 and me. So what's the, what's the extra number? That, I'd just, right. <laughs> Doctrines. So th- there's a big one called the Immaculate Conception. That's a big one. Uh, there's another uh, that would be called something like original sin. All of these sort of tag along with the idea of a virgin birth. And they sit there like like bricks in a wall that if you were to like pull one out to look at it, you, there's this fear that the whole wall might fall down. Now, here's the thing. There's this phrase called parthenogenesis. That's not a word I ever want to say again. But it means virgin birth. So Parthenos is the word for virgin, also the word for maiden. Genesis is sort of like origins. So this phrase comes out of biology because it turns out that there are all kinds of instances of virgin birth in the world. Did you know this? For instance, there is a snake. It's always a snake, right? And I just assume that no matter who the mother of a snake is, the father of a snake is Satan. Like full stop. However, uh, there was this snake that was in the news a few years back. Uh, there was the, this big reticulated python. It was, in a, it was in a cage or a case. And it was a she. And she had a live-in roommate in said case. Also a female python. And then one day there were eggs in the cage. That's a problem because normally you need, I think, I don't know a lot about snakes to think you need a male and a female snake. And so this is this instance of virgin birth in nature. So, sometimes we hold this idea of the virgin birth in our New Testament stories as this sort of unique, never-before-seen or heard event that kind of blows our minds away. But that's not even, like, true in nature. This is a thing that just happens sometimes. Or, it's 2018, Which means, like, I'm pretty sure in about six months, men are not going to be necessary for having babies. We have advanced so far along that in, like, a decade from now, we're going to tell people, like, did you know that you can have a baby and you don't need a guy? And people are going to be like, yes, we've been doing that for years. China did it 20 years ago. It's going to be fine. So what do we do with this story that on its face seems strange but is maybe less and less strange in our world, and what does it mean in the way that the writers are telling it? So I want to take virgin birth and I want to try and hand it back to you from a different perspective. Turns out that this idea of virgin birth is not particularly unique to our story, to our gospel, to our New Testament. In the Parthenon, that big sort of colonnaded hall for the gods uh, in Greek culture... There is a statue that was in the middle of the Parthenon. And this thing was huge. And it was called Athena Parthenos, which means the Virgin Athena. Because there is this very important goddess, and she has a statue that is humongous. And that's her on the right. I drew her perfectly to scale, and that's exactly what she looks like. If you go to Tennessee... Uh, there is a perfect one-to-one replica of the Parthenon. And then years later, they put an Athena statue in it as well. And the thing is humongous. Uh, this would have been kind of in the background in the culture at the time. So what does it mean for us to have a story of this young, uh, engaged, but not yet married woman from Nazareth, which is, ooh, that's not where you want to stand. Uh, this sort of castaway backwoods town who's called Parthenos. Virgin, and gives birth to this new thing in the world, Maria Parthenos. That's part of what we're hearing here when we talk about virgin birth. There are all of these other big stories from all of the other big religions at the time about how divinity is born into the world, about who gets to mediate the divine. And their answer was usually the big, scary gods and goddesses and their big statues that you could see and you could point to, not some castaway woman in a small village up in the area of Galilee. That's just not how these stories go. So when we talk about the angel Gabriel showing up to this one woman, Mary, this young young woman, It's partly being held in contrast to these stories. And look at the way that the last story was told from Zachariah and Elizabeth. If you were here last week, you remember Zachariah and Elizabeth, these very old couple, both from the priestly class, are unable to have children because they can't have children, are deeply shamed in their own culture. And the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah, promises that they're going to have a child, and this child is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. This is a big, big deal. And the story ended last week with Elizabeth in hiding, pregnant, saying, the Lord has seen me and taken away my shame. And then we have a scene change into this week. And look at the way that the scene changes. We've gone from... The older Zachariah and Elizabeth to this young, young woman, Mary, and her fiancé, Joseph. And we've gone from something like barrenness, the steros language. They can't have children. They've been trying to this couple who hasn't even started trying to have children yet. And all of a sudden, they are pregnant. And then we have something that is like a blessing. The Lord has seen me and taken away my shame. That this is a moment of benediction for Zachariah and Elizabeth to something that looks and feels a lot like a scandal for Mary and Joseph. It's as though the author of Luke's gospel is saying God can intervene in history from either direction, from either impossibility. And just in case you weren't sure, let's show it to you this way, and then let's flip everything upside down and show it to you again. That God is doing a new thing in the world. God is disrupting the status quo. God is telling a competing story about the way that divinity is born in our world. That's what this story of the virgin birth is about. So let's dive a little bit deeper into it, okay? Here's the language. If you've got a Bible, you can open to Luke chapter 1. I want to make a connection for you. in the sixth month angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth that is a nowhere town in a nowhere area in Israel nobody cares about Nazareth or Galilee what good could come from Nazareth they say later to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Moses from the house of David the virgin's name was Mary so this angel shows up Gabriel who's been busy flying from place to place Or walking from place to place. It doesn't exactly say that Gabriel was flying around. Probably power walking, though. Because Galilee is not super close to Bethlehem. This angel comes to her and says, Greetings, favor, when the Lord is with you. And she was much perplexed, is what my text says. The language in the Greek is she was super freaked out. That's how it translates. By his words. And she pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. The same language That the angel says to Zechariah, don't be afraid, for you found favor with God. Now you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. His name will be Jesus. He'll be great, called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Here's all out of that imperial language again. Last week we talked about, it was in the days of Herod, that this story is being told. Who occupies the throne. And in another chapter, we're going to hear the language of Caesar Augustus, who is known as the son of God, known as the son of the Most High, who's brought peace to the world. this angel shows up to this nobody and tells her that she's going to birth a revolution and uses all of the imperial cult language to tell the story. He'll have the throne of his ancestor David reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is dangerous, seditious language. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? Fair question. And the angel says to her, and here's our line the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. And he'll be called the Son of God. This language right here is the sort of language that if we know our scriptures well, if we know our stories well, we'll send off little sirens in our head. Scripture talks to itself, right? It's like an echo, and this is echoing back to a big story. You all know where that story is, because it's the only other part of my Bible that works: the Exodus. You knew. By now, you should probably feel the connection, right? Let me read to you the part that matters. Go to Exodus 24 if you've got a Bible. If you've got it memorized, good for you. This is the very end of the Mount Sinai section where the nation of Israel's gotten the Ten Commandments, they've gotten the law, they've gotten everything that they need to be the people of God. And God said, here's the rules that you need to follow if we're going to be in relationship with one another here are sort of the boundaries of our relationship do you agree and the people says yes everything that you said we will do and we will hear it we've understood it and god says good then i will be your god and you're going to be my people and they become like one flesh one community and one nation there's a problem though this god is terrifying and this is always the tension of our faith the tension of the biblical story the way that it's handed to us is that god is both imminent so very near to us right like hans like god sitting right here kind of hanging out with us but then also god is huge and God is scary. And God is powerful. And both of those at the same time are always operating. And there are different times where we sort of lean into the intimacy of God, the friend language of God, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I'm his own, that, that hymn in the garden. And then there are other times where we sing about victory and we sing about power and might, and God is much bigger even than this room, which is huge. But it's the same God. And that was the problem for the people of Israel with the mountain, is that God was thunder and lightning and fire on the top of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And the people had seen this God destroy all of Egypt's power. All of those chariots and all of those soldiers drown in the sea. And there has to be a part of them that thinks, like, right, what have we gotten ourselves into here? This God is loose and free in the world. And so they say to Moses... That one that's familiar to us now, like, we're going to stay down here and you go up there and you talk to God. Because this God is like a consuming fire. So Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord, there's that same language. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses from out of the cloud Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. A devouring fire. That does not sound like a good thing. And Moses entered the cloud and went up to the mountain. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the story of Moses' relationship with this God and Israel's relationship with this God. I'm going to show you what it looks like. The beginning of the story of Exodus, there is this movement that is established in the narrative. And it's the movement that God is always about. So it's it's important that we pay attention to it. Which is that wherever God is, when God feels distant from us, when God feels our need, God responds and draws close. The language is always directional in the text, right? So like in Exodus, it says that God sees, God looks down, and God comes down to lift us up. Right, so we can imagine, even though it's not exactly spatially correct, right, that God is in the sky and that we are down below. It's not how these things work, but let's hold on to it for a second. That God is, in some ways, feeling distant. And when the people cry out in their slavery, God responds. And so all of that power and presence and energy and fire, it moves closer to them. It moves to the top of the mountain. And that's kind of close for the people. So they back off and Moses moves closer. But you know where this story is going. God doesn't stay on the mountain. There comes a point in the story where they crave God's presence so much that they create, right, a little kind of partial God out of of the golden calf. But part of that yearning is they say, like, if this God doesn't go with us, then we are nothing. We are lost. You feel the tension? you go talk to that God, keep that God far enough away from us that God doesn't devour us, but also can this God please come a little closer to us because if if this God abandons us, then we are lost. That's Sinai. And so then the second half of the book of Exodus is the building of the tabernacle, which is the tent that houses the presence of God. That's pretty close. It's too close for comfort. One writer says that the building of the tabernacle is expressing this inner uh, desire for density. That it's not enough just to know that God is with us. Can can we draw God even closer? Can we see God face-to-face, Moses craves? It's this desire for density, for a sacred weightiness. That's what's happening in this story. So, this is the language that the text applies to the Virgin Mary. And this is where the energy is in this passage. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. You see the connection we're making here? I'm going to read one other section for you. It's the end of the book of Exodus. Chapter 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord overshadowed the tabernacle. Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Can you feel it? This is Mary. What the text is telling us is that she becomes... A house for God that she becomes a tabernacle there's a fancy word for this but I don't want to jump ahead of this moment who can mediate the divine presence in the world what is a suitable home for God a God who can't be contained in houses built by hands it says a God, even the temple in Jerusalem can't hold, and yet somehow sees fit to inhabit Mary. It turns her into the site of all of that density. I mean, she, she knows this story. She knows all of these connections, and she says, let it be as you've spoken. Let it be according to your word. Fancy word for what Mary becomes known as is theotakos. We don't know this word very well. Does anyone know what this word means? We grew up like Greek Orthodox. This might sound more familiar to us. The language of theotakos is very important theological language in the Orthodox tradition. It means the mother of God. So theo is God, takos is, is to bear or to mother something. And this is what Mary becomes known as. And just like in other traditions for Christianity, this entire um, sort of reverence grows up around Mary because she becomes this big, big figure like Athena, the statue. Mary sort of takes this super elevated place in our own religious practice. Theotakos, she's the mother of God. She specifically is the mother of God. And what happens when we use this kind of language, correct as it is, is that Mary becomes huge. And then Mary becomes removed. Right? Mary is nothing like us. But the story is actually telling us that Mary is quite ordinary. She's from a very ordinary place. She's flesh and blood. She's got her own history that's coming along with her. She's got her own struggles and doubts. She's a quite human figure in the story. Now, once we reflect on the story, she, she moves away. But the story is trying to draw her close to us and draw us close to her. Because she's not the only one who gets to be Theo. Talk us. Meister Eckhart, Christian thinker, preacher, and pastor, says it this way. We're all meant to be mothers of God. What good is it to me if this eternal birth of the divine son takes place unceasingly, but does not take place within myself And what good is it to me if Mary is full of grace, but I am not also full of grace? And what good is it to me for the Creator to give birth to His Son if I also do not give birth to Him in my time and in my culture? This then is the fullness of time when the Son of God is begotten in us. This is a huge statement. I believe this is what Luke is trying to tell us about who Mary is. That Mary is found worthy to carry the divine into the world, to give birth to God's future and the fulfillment of God's promises. And in a way that is both unique in time and place and also makes space for us to walk into this story. I mean, Mary... In this story just kind of says like, okay, let it be according to your word. It's not a huge act. She just says, okay. I'm going to read it again. We are all meant to be mothers of God. Theotakos. What good is it to me if the eternal birth of the divine son takes place unceasingly, but does not take place within myself? And what good is it to me if Mary is full of grace, but I'm not also full of grace? And what good is it to me for the creator to give birth to his son if I also don't give birth to him in my time, in my culture, in 2018, on this day, in Pasadena, in Los Angeles, in America, as we find the world right now? God is trying to be born anew. And who will bear the divine into the world? Who will be the site of another advent, of another coming, of another birth? This then is the fullness of time, that language of the fullness of time, when the Son of God is begotten in us. Sometimes these stories, they get so huge that we can't see ourselves in them. They become about something else that happened some other time way back then. And we see them and we appreciate them, but we don't know how to enter into them. And we keep these people as heroes so they don't have to be like us, so that we don't have to be like them. But that's not what this story is about. The story is about drawing close to Mary. And what's her miracle? just simply that she says yes the true miracle of this birth is something like simple obedience to the call other than the mechanics of the thing how is this going to be because i have not yet known a man Mary doesn't hem and haul and push back against the I'm not worthy language. I can't imagine that you would choose me language. God's just spoken a reality in the world and Mary buys it and Mary says, okay. Now, if I went up to each of you or even to myself and I look in the mirror to be honest and I said, God is looking for a home. God is looking for a place to be born in the world. Right, Paul? There would be from each of you A whole list of reasons for why you are not worthy to be the sight of the divine. Or why it's not the right time. Or why you've got to get a few things in order. Or why God must have misread the name John Jay and must have meant the John Jay that lives a few houses down. But Mary just says, okay, let it be. And that's a miracle in of itself. Just simple obedience. Obedience. And maybe that's all that we're called to in this Advent season is just to believe that God is always trying to be born in our midst and in fact sees us as worthy to carry God into the world. Because if not, if not you, then who? Right? If not us, then who? One last story. Elie Weisel, Holocaust survivor, great writer and thinker, tells this story from the rabbinical tradition. It says, there was a great rabbi named Rabbi Israel, Baal Shem Tov. And any time that there was a crisis that would befall the Jewish people, and there was always a crisis, lots of crises, any time there was a crisis, a threat hanging over them, that Rabbi Israel Baal Shem Tov would go to a certain place in the forest. And in that certain place in the forest would light a particular kind of fire. And around that fire would sit and say a particular prayer. And the text says that it was sufficient because God saw the fire and heard the prayer and rescued God's people. And so this became this sort of folklore, tradition, in the background at the time. Rabbi Israel had a disciple whose name was Megid of Mezrik. And Magid knew this story. It says, though, when a crisis befell the people... And it was time for Magid to intercede on their behalf. That he would go into the forest. But he didn't know how to light the fire. But he knew the prayer. And he would say the prayer. And it was sufficient. And God saw and rescued. And said that his disciple, Rabbi Moshe Leib of Sasav, picks up this tradition. And when a crisis befell the people, that he would go to the forest. He didn't know how to light the fire and he didn't even know the prayer. But God saw and it was sufficient. And God rescued his people. And the next generation... Named after the first. Rabbi Israel of Rizheim. Inherits this story. Inherits this responsibility. It said when a crisis fell upon the people. He would sit in his chair. Maybe he would sit in his pew. And he would bow his head. Head in his hands. And he would say to God. I don't even know. The place. And I don't know how to light the fire. And I don't know the prayer. But I can tell this story. And tradition says that it was sufficient. And God rescued God's people. We are given this story. Of God being born in our world. God taking up residence in one of us. And I don't always know the place. And I don't always know what it means to light the fire. And I don't know all that Mary said when that angel showed up to give her this news. But I know the story. And in telling it, I believe that I might be able to live into it. And in your telling it, you believe that you might be the house of God. And it is sufficient. Or maybe more to the point, you are sufficient. That you might be worthy to be the house of God. That you could birth the divine. Can you feel? Can you feel the birth pains? Can you feel creation groaning, waiting? I can. I see you. As I learn you and know you, I can feel that willingness to say, okay. Let it be here. Let it be now. What is the language of inviting God into our lives or into our heart, but the belief that God might find a home there? And how many of us have said the prayer that we might be a home for the divine? And what does it mean to invite all of that density into our lives, to be tabernacles that walk through this world? It means that we might be the blessing. It means that you might already be home. Would you pray with me God of all the crazy ideas that you have had seeing us as worthy is maybe sometimes the most preposterous because I know God that my friends here have a thousand reasons for why they are not ready for this to be true why I am not ready for this to be true because I've just got some stuff to get in order, God. I've got to go take care of some family things. I've got to go take care of some business. And could you come back later with this kind of preposterous proposition? And yet, if Mary could find a way to say okay, and help us to be so brave to say okay, come on in. today, For those here who have held up a wall for so long, would you give them the strength to let go and to open up? Would you give this congregation the expansiveness to make space for you and the generosity to move through this world carrying you? Make us sturdy for the encounter because we believe that you are the active and living God. And we also know that if you are not with us, then we are nothing. Hear our prayer. And like you continue to do, come down into our midst and inhabit this space. Amen.